Greetings, fellow imps. I'm Imp Fossil Tom Hensky, and I'd like to welcome you to From Nowhere to Now Here, Where Incarnate Memories Prevail. Like many incoming first years, I entered the university a blank canvas. You get it, nowhere. But four years later, I grew to now here. And when I look back at that transformation, it was the friendships that I built through the imps that were a huge part of that growth. But where did everyone end up? I'm going to take us on a journey to find them, to catch up with the friends we've lost touch with. And in doing so, my mission is to rekindle these amazing relationships. Imp Nation, we're back! Yeah, what's up, Susan Blank? How are you? <laughs> I'm good. Good to see you. Oh my God. It's like I get to spend a lot of time with you like over the last couple of years. It's a blast, but it's weird to be doing like this interview style. Usually it's me hanging out in your kitchen eating ice cream and cookies and all sorts of stuff I shouldn't be eating. I know. We love having you and Spencer here. It's been so fun to, to reconnect and get to see so much more of you over the last couple of years. Yeah, and Spencer tells me you're quite the cook. Yeah, we just threw that together that night. That was okay. <laughs> it's like, what can we make that's like suitable for company when he well, came he, over? But it was so fun. It was so sweet. Spencer came to um, he helped one of our girls with some goalie emergency goalie training, and then was so sweet and came to a game of hers or of theirs, um, and then came back and had dinner with us on Rugby Road, which was awesome. So John was psyched because most of our family does not eat meat, so he like broke out the steaks because he felt like he had like a man to eat with. Um, yeah, and then had some pasta. It was fun. All right. Take everyone through the trip. You started in high school. Talk a little about high school, where you were, what was going on, what was in your head, why on earth you decided to come to UVA. And you know, then we'll talk about why you never left UVA, but that's a story for a little bit later. So <laughs> give me the high school story. Exactly. So I grew up in Tennessee and I went to a school called Girls Preparatory School which is um, exactly as you would probably imagine it. Southern prep school. We wore these horrible uniforms that somebody had designed in like 1906 that had all the, you know, a little black bow at the top and a special belt. And we had to wear slips and we got like demerits if we were caught without wearing a slip. Um, like the big, the big thing at the end of the year, which I always think about this time of year was something called May Day, which was like the equivalent of graduation where we would all learn these dances and the sophomores would dance around the maypole. Um, and then the seniors would come out. It was very like debutante. We all wore these like long formal gowns, but there were really strict rules about what color they had to be and how much skin should be showing. And there was a May queen and a May court. So um, it was definitely kind of a throwback from another time, but it was a really good school academically um, and set me up for, for success for sure. Um, we, we had the big excitement was we had exchange classes with the boys schools in the afternoon. So we had a brother school named Macaulay. So I went over there in the afternoon. Um, the, the boys school was better. The science classes, the girls school was better. It's like the language and arts, um, which always kind of irked me because I was a, a science kid, but I would go over to the boys school in the afternoon to take my chemistry and physics and stuff like that. Um, and growing up, I really, I hate to admit this to you and on this podcast, but I really thought I was going to go to Duke. 
Um, I had gone to a summer program there that I loved. And I was a Duke basketball fan. Um, I may or may not have had a big crush on Christian Leitner at the time and, you know, thought that I could like go there and, and meet him and, you know, right off into the sunset. Um, so that was kind of where my mind was when I was looking at colleges. Um, and I ended up getting nominated for the Jefferson Scholar Program um, and came up here and they're super smart with how they do that. They invite everybody up and April when everything is blooming and gorgeous and had really cool seminars with great professors. Like I did one with Ed Ayers and I had a friend um, from high school who took me out to fraternity parties at night. And I just had like such an amazing weekend um, and fell in love with UVA and came back and was like, hmm, you know, maybe, maybe UVA, maybe, you know, kind of pulled it even with Duke. And then, um, and then a couple things happened. One is that Chattanooga has a weirdly large UVA alumni contingent um, and like alumni everywhere. I think from UVA, they were very like rabid and passionate about UVA. So for the week or two after I came back, like I kept running into people like walking around the neighborhood or at school and people would just like grab me and like tell me how wonderful UVA was and how I had to go there. And it was really impactful because it was just so different from, from any other school um, and then I ended up getting the scholarship and that kind of sealed the deal. And so off I went to Charlottesville. That's awesome. There's a lot packed in there. Um, do you know my Christian Leitner story? Did I ever tell you that one? No. Uh -uh. Oh my God. There's, you know, there's that 30 for 30 on ESPN that says yeah. I hate Leitner. Okay. So I have a UVA Christian Leitner story. So do you remember we used to go to beach week after? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And you normally see kids from Yale, Duke and UVA. I don't know why that combination is kind of weird, but whatever. And so there was one girl that I had wanted to date when I was at UVA. There was maybe more than one, but this one in particular who had a boyfriend all the way through. She breaks up with her boyfriend two weeks before we're supposed to go down there everyone goes down to Myrtle Beach. I think it was called Crazy Zacks was the place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Okay, am I right? So we're Crazy Zacks. And then I'm dancing with her at like one o'clock in the morning on the dance floor. I'm like, okay, this is the best. Chance. Like my chance. And in rolls Leitner, okay? He then rolls up to this girl and he starts dancing with her. She turned her back to me. And that was the last I saw her of all beach weeks. So, okay. So you then decide to come to UVA. What happens? Tell me about your first couple of weeks. Where were you living? All that kind of stuff. Yeah. So I lived in Watson, like the geeky Eccles dorm, but I loved it and um, just made great friends right off the bat. A lot of my still really good friends to this day are from, from there. One of the silver linings of the pandemic actually was we started having a weekly Zoom call, which we've continued of, you know, five of my friends that were from my suite and off suite um, at Watson. Um, yeah, I just, I just loved it right from the beginning. I took a lot of great science classes. I started getting involved in things right off the bat. Um, I had been on the honor committee at my high school and so I got involved in honor at UVA and joined the guide service um, and just kind of hit the ground running with a lot of different stuff. And I remember, you know, there, 
feel like, you know, sometimes when you're on vacation or something, you have this moment where you, you know, just realize you're super happy and it doesn't happen that much. I feel like in like day-to-day life, but I have like this distinct memory of like early on, like walking back from like O'Hill to Watson and just being like, you know, I've like arrived, like, I'm so happy. This is my place. Like I had, I had liked high school fine, but I'd never, you know, I never, I wasn't one of those people who was like, high school is the best. And, you know, I always kind of felt like I was waiting for something and I, you know, felt like I kind of found my people and, and my place and, and was, was super happy. So coming into it, did you know you were going to be a chemistry major or was that kind of after the fact? I thought I was going to be. So I had, like, I was a weird, like, chemistry savant kind of. I actually, (laughs) this is a little known fact. I went to the International Chemistry Olympics in high school in Poland. I was like the U.S. representative. (laughs) <laughs> is that a thing? Wait a second. Uh, do I? It's actually like fact? a real thing. I was not a fact checking that. I am going to fact check that. You better not be lying <laughs> to me. The, the statute of limitations for the honor code does not end. No, okay? it, it was like this crazy thing. I got like this letter and I got invited. I went to like a training camp at the U.S. Air Force Academy and then ended up like being one of four people who represented. I, and I got a bronze medal and they gave me like a weird face that I still have. Yeah. Do you, anyway, do they have a podium. Do you, do you have a podium? Did they sing a national anthem for you? When you, when you met? No. Yeah. No, it wasn't that exciting. There was a big line of kids. And in fairness, there were like 10 kids who got golds and like 20 kids who got silvers and like 30 kids who got bronze. So it wasn't really that exciting. But um, yeah, no, it's a very weird kind of strange high school experience. So anyway, I came in, I was really good at chemistry and I kind of, I had already, you know, if so I jumped right into like really advanced chemistry classes and that's kind of, yeah, what, what I thought I was going to do. I think I thought it was going to be like a research chemist, like a hardcore chemist. And I think a couple of like the kids that I did it with are, are now, you know, famous chemistry professors, but um, I liked being around people too much to just stay in the lab all the time. So I've kind of meandered um, away from that over time. Well, we know that when you're in the Olympics, there are great endorsement opportunities. So I'm trying to think <laughs> of like, what do you endorse? Like the periodic table of the, like, of exactly uh, helium <laughs> or beakers or Bunsen burners. <laughs> what do you have going on with that? Exactly. Pipettes. <laughs> So, okay. So then you're, you're no, you know, you're going to be in chemistry. You're going to be majoring in chemistry. Great. Okay. With what end in mind when you were early on? Yeah, I think I wanted to be like a pharmaceutical chemist. Like I thought I was going to go and work for, you know, Merck or Pfizer and discover cures for things. And I did, I did a lot of undergraduate research. I'd spent um, a couple of years doing research in the chemistry department. And then I ended up moving over and did um, research for a great guy who was over at um, the medical center, Ron Taylor, who, who I love and was just a great mentor um, and really taught me a ton of stuff. Um, and I went back and worked for him a little bit after college too, before I went to medical school. Um, he did really crazy research that was like funded by the defense department, trying to find, you know, cures for all kinds of exotic diseases using the blood cells. It was kind of a cool, cool thing. So that was, I I think my UVA experience was a little bit weird because I think, um, you know, instead of just doing classes all the time, I would do my classes, but then I had this kind of 10, 15 hours a week where I was 
in the lab doing research. Um, but at the end of the day, I went, I actually interviewed um, and got into PhD programs, but I really, yeah, I really just wanted more interaction with people. Um, and I needed kind of more instant gratification than, than pure lab work provided me. It was just such long time horizons and just kind of grinding away. Um, and so I ended up, and then I decided I was going to look at MD PhD programs. And then I eventually just got the MD. So I kind of gradually moved away from the, the hard sciences over time. So now tell me about social life while you're at UVA the first couple of years. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of it. So I had these great friends from Watson and then I was part of the guide service, which was almost like a fraternity or sorority in and of itself, um, which is like so unique to UVA. I think everywhere else, you know, they just hire the, the guides, but here, you know, typical UVA fashion, you make it an honor and then people, you know, take it on themselves to like self-select, but, but we had tons of parties and stuff. Um, and so I think a lot of my, yeah, a lot of my social life, especially early on kind of was centered around, um, around the guide service and, and lots of great people who, you know, lots of imps were, were part of that, um, too. So, so that's where I spent most of my time socially. Um, I, when I, uh, having come from an all girls school, I wasn't like super excited about being in a sorority. I went through the whole rush process, but kind of at the end of the day, kind of felt like I already had, had done that. So I didn't, I didn't go that route. Although I spent tons of time at, you know, sorority events and fraternity parties for sure. And so you're like milling around the university and I have to ask, and then you meet this guy when, like, when did Jonathan come into the mix? Was this during college, after college? What it happened? was during college. It was my, I mean, I think I first ran into him in retrospect, my third year, he actually drove me home when I yeah needed a ride because I was, had been drinking after some kind of imp function, we had been at the white spot. Um, and somehow he like drove me home and dropped me off, but he was really like, just like a ride at that point. He was like this older law school. <laughs> um, and then, um, my fourth year, um, do you remember Boots Mead? Sure. Uh, yeah. So he actually like played matchmaker and set us up kind of, or, uh, so we, I mean, John was friends with a lot of my friends, Gray McLean and Maria Doyle, um, you know, kind of, you know, people, uh, through ends or through DTD and stuff that he knew. Um, and then, and then Mr. Mead and Mr. Mead at some point told him that he should ask me out because I was in um, the Mead seminar and he did. Um, yeah. And the rest is history. Yeah. You should, you probably should have consulted me about that one. I was li <laughs> living with your now husband. I would have warned you. Against I know. Yeah. That. I think you had moved on by that point. It was like his, his, his third year of law school and my fourth year. I would have saved you. I would have saved I know, you. I should have, I should have, should have yeah. called you. I can't, you know, it's hard. I can't save the whole world, but you know, I could have saved you had I been one more. Had I, I feel like you had time to intervene though, like a long, you know, we dated for a really, really long time before we got married. I feel like, you know. Yeah, but you know how that works, right? But like, if you have a friend who's dating somebody who you don't <laughs> like and you voice your opinion and that can like, that has a slippery slope. Yeah, no, that no. That's really dangerous. Bad. Yeah. yeah. And like, and there's a good chance, like, and then they might wind up with that person. Right. So then you're done, but then yeah, no, might, even uh, if they break, even if they break up with them, you got to be careful because yeah, you never know what's going to yeah. happen in the yeah. future. So now you're like at you're, where the imps come into all this, like what, what was going on? Yeah. So that uh, happened my third year. Um, and I, I was living out at 
Courtney dorm by the time, if you remember where that is, it's like the furthest one away. I was like, I wanted to be an RA and I almost cried when I got the call that said I was living in Courtney because that was not what I imagined. It's like past the football stadium. Um, and I was third year and I was actually working on a, uh, like a lab report with a partner at my dorm room. And then Robbie Grossman and Kate Bolger came over and, um, yeah. And I like kicked my poor lab partner out into the suite. Um, and I can't even remember the whole story, some kind of thing about, you know, an honor violation somehow like involving Robbie. And I think like Tiki and Rondé Barber or like some thing. Um, and then they eventually told me that it was for the imps. And I like, I still feel bad about this. I just like ditched my poor lab partner and was like, sorry, gotta go. And like, we headed over to the college and I just like left him. But um, yeah. Uh, and I remember just being so like overwhelmed and like honored to, to be part of it. You just kind of walk in that room and you see all the people um, who, yeah, were, yeah, so impressive. Um, and in such, you know, different worlds, all the, you know, athletes and all these big personalities. Um, I'm not sure how in the world I ever, yeah, got hooked up with that group, but, um, was just super, um, excited, uh, to, to be part of it. Did you walk in that room and say, Oh, I'm smarter than all of these people put together. Oh my God. Not. I was like, I am not nearly as cool as these people. I have no idea what I'm doing here. Yeah. Everyone had a balance. Everything, everybody brought something to the party, right? <laughs> if you have all funny people or all athletes or all like honor committee people, then it makes for a dull group, right? So you, you got to have that mix. Yeah. That's part of the magic, I think. Did you wind up playing any of the practical jokes on anyone else that you remember? I have very, I'm glad to hear like listening to other people's podcasts that, that I'm not the only one. I have like very vague memories of a lot of the imp stuff. I have weird little like snippets of, you know, a three second video here and there, but yeah, don't, yeah, don't remember any specific practical jokes. Well, it's funny because I think a few people had revisionist history that you just kind of let go in the course of the interview. You're like, you didn't do that. Come on. <laughs> Come on. But I also know that by the time, like we always joke the 200th interview, that will be me. I will have concocted an unbelievable amount of stories that probably none of which will be accurate. But in my mind, after hearing all the stories, I think like I lived the story. Yeah, exactly. You can kind of pick and choose from other people's memories. Yeah, I'm going to pick and choose. And by the time we get to 200, no one will remember what happened in episodes one through 50. So I I can retell the stories. Great. So now um, any other funny stories through your four years, things that you remember? I love the fact that you, you remembered that moment in time that you were kind of like in your happy place. Anything else? Good stories? Yeah. I mean, goodness. Um, I do have one, yeah, kind of one, my best imp night. Um, and then I have one thing that it's like a very distinct memory that I'd like to just throw out there because it's so bizarre that I seems like I would have had to make it up, but it's also so bizarre that I don't think I could possibly have made it up. So I have like, again, like these weird little snippets. So I remember like throwing, uh, you know, fruit or rotten stuff at whatever, some, at some coronation. And then I also have a memory of Courtney Page and Barton Dick rolling down the lawn in some kind of big tractor tire. Um, so if anybody out there also has this memory or can kind of put together the pieces about if that happened and, and how it transpired, um, I would love to hear that because I, it's just, it's a really weird, but very distinct memory. 
exactly. I don't know if it was like a weird dream that I just made it up or what. Um, and then my other, and, and this isn't really funny, but it was just kind of like another one of those like quintessential UVA nights. So I, uh, like I said, was part of the guide service and we had this big thing called the Colonnade Ball every fall. Um, and so my fourth year, a friend of mine invited me to be his date at the ball. And I basically was like, thank you, but you know, it's an imp march that night. So I don't think I can do it. And he was super nice and was like, we can do both, you know, we'll just go and we'll have a great night. And, um, and it ended up that the, uh, that the march was going to the ball because I think Matt Fisher or somebody else was being actually kind of tapped at, at the ball, um, so we went to the ball, then the march came through, then we like left and went on the rest of the march and ended up back at the lawn. And it was kind of like this perfect confluence of all my worlds at UVA. And it was just kind of a really super fun night. Yeah. In my, you know, formal, you know, fancy dress with like the the hood and the pitchfork and, you know, hanging out with all my my best friends at the lawn. It was awesome. Now, did you find, did you study a lot when you were at school? Like, were you like really, because I know you love what you do. And I know you're the type of person that when you go all in on something, you're all in. So were you all in on the academic part? Yeah. Yeah, I was. I felt like, um, so my high school had been like super hardcore, like throw the book at you homework wise. So I feel like I had really just good study habits from that. And, and actually UVA, I felt like I had so much more control over my time. So I'm sure I studied a lot, but I think because, you know, it, I, I had to could do it more on my own time. I never felt like it, you know, I didn't feel like I was like living at the library or anything like that. And, and what was the commitment to the guides? Like, was that like an all week, every week type of thing for you? Like yeah, I think we had to do like, at least, I mean, over the course of the semester, basically the average of like one or two tours a week or something like that. Um, yeah. And then had extra events and stuff on top of it. So it was a pretty decent commitment, but it was just such a fun group of people. Um, and I really enjoyed giving the tours. I was kind of like a geek about the UVA history and um and it was fun to see other people kind of get excited about that we would do kind of the historic tours and you you know have all these tourists come through who who you know were from all over the world and thought it was a really you know cool important place to visit and then the admission tours were always fun too because you get to yeah talk to all the prospective students and try to sell them on UVA which is a pretty pretty easy sell most of the time um but but yeah but I, I enjoyed doing that you must get roped into that a lot now that you're still living in Charlotte. You no, know, I do, but I don't remember anything. I have a terrible memory and I literally like talk about like making stuff up. I'm like, hi, you know, <laughs> no, no idea, especially the historic stuff. I'm like vaguely like Thomas Jefferson, you know, 1800s. I remember when we were taking Spencer around, he did the normal, you know, admissions tour and then he did the, the historical tour, but then he did the dad tour. And Stacy like politely said to me, she goes, you know, like your version of UVA doesn't seem to have any academics in it. <laughs> right? She's like, she's like maybe don't listen to the dad tour. She's like, she's like, where do you realize that all of your stories of, oh, I was out drinking with this guy or we were doing this or we, we did that. We crashed this party. We like were up at two o'clock in the morning. She goes, 
I don't know if that's like the right messaging. I'm like, well, if it gets them here, it kind of like served its purpose, right? She's like, yeah, but what happens when he gets here? I'm like, okay, we'll deal with that when he gets there. So I, I always wondered if the you guides, like when they graduate, do they still enjoy doing the tours? Like when, you know, they bring their own kids or for you when friends and family come in and recruit you to walk them around. Yeah, I wish I remembered more. It is fun. Um, although it's changed so much. I mean, you've been around recently. Like, I don't even know if I could give an admissions tour anymore. I don't even know what half the buildings, yeah, are. Yeah, it's it's funny. Like it, a couple times, uh, Stacy said to me on that trip, like, "How do you not know that? Didn't you go here for four years?" And I'm like, "Honey, like that has like nothing to do with anything that I did here." <laughs> She's like, "It's a classroom." <laughs> Exactly. 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 Can you show me a classroom? Any classroom. (laughs) That's what the admissions tour is for. Come on, come on. Okay, cool. So you're living in Charlottesville. How's that? We love it. I love it. You know, we, so John and I had kind of conspired to come back here. He really wanted to come back to Virginia. Um, I didn't really want to go back to Richmond. This seemed like a perfect place. And finally, all the stars kind of aligned to make it happen. And we both kind of freaked out. We were like, what if we only like loved it because we loved UVA and college and our time there and we're going to move back and it's going to suck. And, you know, um, but we really, we've, we've loved it from the moment that we landed here. I think Charlottesville's grown up in so many kind of interesting ways and there's so much more to it than either we knew. And I think that was actually like at, you know, here when we um, were in college, so the downtown mall area and all the wineries. And so there's tons of stuff to do away from, from UVA that's really fun, but it's also so nice to be kind of right in the midst of it and have like, we literally, so, you know, we live, we live actually on rugby road right near UVA. Um, So, you know, we walk our dog on the lawn. The dog thinks he's like a, you know, superstar because all the college kids miss their dogs and will like pet him. Um, You know, my kids grew up running around on the lawn. We have access to, you know, all the, you know, UVA sports. So we go to not just football and basketball, but lots of like the women's soccer games and um, other stuff like that. It's just so, so great to be kind of right, right in the midst of it and to be able to, to enjoy it. And then the, the other thing that's been so great for us is, you know, Charlottesville is a magnet for people coming back. So it's nice to, to kind of, be at a place where our friends are kind of constantly coming in for reunions or for get togethers with various groups of friends. And then now like we've reached an age where people are coming through with, you know, college tours or kids like Spencer are going to, to school here. And so we kind of constantly get a flow of people coming through, which is kind of a nice hidden benefit of living here. Well, after you graduated, you had another academic stop, didn't you? I did. So I, when I first graduated, I went to Bain for a while and then I went to Harvard Medical School. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, so I was in Boston for a while. Um, and then I did my uh, residency in Baltimore at Johns Hopkins. John, we got married right after medical school. So I was in Boston by myself. So we were long distance for like seven years and then got married. And then we both moved to Baltimore for three, three and a half years um, before I came back here to do my fellowship. John's managed to kind of work for the same firm the whole time, just switching between different offices. Um, But yeah, so we were definitely, um, I loved Boston. Um, I I would have actually 
probably stayed there longer. Um, neither one of us really loved Baltimore. So we were definitely, you know, super excited when it worked out to come back to Charlottesville for, for all kinds of reasons. How did it feel to go to an academically inferior school in Harvard, <laughs> Harvard, after you went to UVA? Was that like a little disappointing for you? It was. Like, it was very disappointing. I mean, it, I think it really, like, you really notice the difference between, yeah, I mean, Harvard, obviously, you know, super strong academically, but definitely doesn't have the same kind of, um, yeah, personality and kind of fun aspect that, that UVA did. It's much more, at least the medical school was much more kind of one-sided. Um, so yeah, I, I, it was great, great academically, but, but did not live up to my, my UVA experience kind of as an overall lifestyle. Yeah. We're good. I have to be up in Boston for a conference and I'm bringing the family just to do the kind of Boston thing. And Samantha's now in ninth grade. So we're going to walk her over to look at Harvard, but I'm hoping it's like a really rainy, gross day, like that it looks terrible. And- yeah. Maybe they have don't a scandal, want to go there. scandal somewhere in there. <laughs> something really, you know, you don't want to wish bad on, you know, a university, but maybe just a little something that makes spooks her out a little bit and sends her down to Virginia. Makes her run away. Yeah. Run down to Virginia. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> run away. <laughs> so, so that I could buy a house right next door to you on Rugby Road. Exactly. We'd love it. Bring it on. I'll keep an eye out for real estate for you. I have to hear more about your career path. You know where I want to get to because like you are rock starish in our family. Every time we talk about what you do and Stacey always goes now, I, I can't explain what she does. I'm like, that's because it's like, she's so smart. It's off the charts, but either can I, but it's really impressive. But can you take us through the Bain like experience and then all the way through what you're doing now, which is super exciting? Yeah. So I went to Bain, which is kind of like a weird detour, I think. Um, but but I really benefited a ton from that experience. I had actually taken the MCAT beforehand. I always kind of thought, you know, that I would probably head back to medical school, but wanted to do something different for a while and kind of, you know, interviewed. I really liked the interview process. Um, I was excited about, you know, you know, learning more about business and kind of the cases um, and went there and yeah, learned a ton, but it really kind of wasn't kind of what I saw myself doing um, long term. Although I think, you know, as we discussed, kind of came back full circle and, and I certainly have put some of those skills to use um, in the latest iteration of my career. And then I went to, yeah, to Harvard, to medical school. Um, and then went to Hopkins to do my internal medicine residency, which was a super intense process, much more. Yeah, that that was by far my hardest academic years, even though it was kind of in a working kind of apprenticeship setting. Um, and then came to UVA to do my fellowship in endocrinology, um, which nobody knows what it is, but it's um, medicine related to hormones and glands. Um, so thyroid stuff and diabetes, adrenal, pituitary is kind of a mixed osteoporosis, a whole bunch of different things are included in that. And UVA had a really good endocrinology uh, division at the time. So it, it was a great place to kind of come back to, um, really worked with really great people. Um, and then after that, I, um, with one of my friends from UVA, set up a private practice in Charlottesville. Um, seeing patients um, along the way. Um, I had two sets of twin girls, which kind of complicated everything in lots of wonderful ways. Um, and then um, after I had done it for a while, I kind of got to this point where I, it was, you know, kind of like a career 
crisis, if you will, where I kind of had had accomplished so much and gotten to this point and was finally kind of at the place where I was just supposed to to cruise in my career. And I found that I just wasn't really super happy doing it, um, which was kind of hard to come to terms with because I had spent so much time (laughs) and effort getting to that point. Um, and I, you know, had this wonderful family and I felt like I was giving up quality time with them to do this job that my heart wasn't hundred percent in. Um, and then I also just got really, uh, kind of frustrated by how diabetes is treated in this country. Um, and kind of was toying around with some ideas to deal with it kind of in a more kind of macro public health way, but didn't feel like I really had time. To, to pursue those ideas. So um, after lots of angst and like thinking about it and, you know, just driving poor Jonathan and my friends crazy, like trying to figure out what I was going to do, um, I eventually decided to leave my practice, which eventually got sold to UVA. So it was kind of a, a happy story. I was really worried about um, leaving, you know, my friend and my partner that I had built the practice with, but she landed in a really good place, which made it much easier for me to kind of walk away. Um, and I took some time to, to spend with the girls and to kind of figure out what I wanted to be when I grew up. Um, and then what I ended up deciding to do, I'd gotten really interested. So part of my frustration with, um, well, I have multiple frustrations with how we treat diabetes, but diabetes, um, and primarily type two diabetes. I was seeing tons of people uh, with this in the clinic, and it's just a huge problem in the United States and around the world. Like over 10% of American adults have type two diabetes. Another third of American adults have prediabetes. Most of those people are going to end up with diabetes if they don't make some changes. And it's you know there are genetic components, there are other components, but a lot of it is really driven by um, by lifestyle, by kind of what we eat and how active we are. Um, but it's treated heavily medically. So we just give people medicine after medicine after medicine, which, you know, thank goodness for the medicines because people need them, but it's just a super expensive way. But we're kind of treating the end effects instead of treating the underlying causes. Um, and it's just super expensive. Like it, it costs, you know, $327 billion to the U.S. economy each year. Like it's, it's nutty. Um, and it's just going to get worse and worse. So I had kind of this big frustration with how it was being treated. And then on a personal level, I was just frustrated because I would see these patients and I would see them. I'd been in practice long enough that I'd see people every few months and I'd have the same conversation about trying to eat, you know, healthier foods and be active and take the medicines to improve their blood sugar so that they wouldn't run into, you know, horrible complications down the road and people would leave the visit and I would feel good about it and they would feel good about it. And then they'd come back in three months and would have the same exact conversation. And after you do this for a few years, you just like feel like you're hitting your head against the wall. Um, And so I realized that people just needed more support outside of the office visit that, you know, if I was seeing people for 30 minutes, like and it was really kind of humbling to realize that like, no matter how awesome I was in those 30 minutes, I was just sending them back out to their regular life. Um, and it was hard for people to sustain it because we're all busy and we live in this environment where we have like all this tempting, like delicious, unhealthy food and tons of stuff to watch on Netflix. And it's, you know, it's hard to make some of these adjustments. So, um, and I got really 
interested in behavioral economics and trying to figure out how you motivate people to make these kind of changes. Um, and so I ended up coming up with this idea to create a digital health program that combined frequent text message-based engagement and also financial incentives to try to provide people more support between office visits. Um, and I'd kind of been playing around with it for a long time and was like, yeah, I don't know if it'll work. It won't work. I finally decided to bite the bullet and do like a little pilot project to see if it worked. Um, and it was really successful. And so I ended up turning it into a nonprofit, which is called Beat Diabetes. Um, and I've been working on kind of expanding it and building it up and rolling it out kind of first in Charlottesville and then hopefully um, it'll expand over time. But it's been a really, you know, fun project. I've gotten to use a lot of my skills from for medicine, but also kind of business strategic thinking from Bain. And I've learned a ton of new stuff along the way about nonprofits and coding. And, you know, there's kind of something um, learned, new to learn, you know, every day. And I'm kind of Foundering my my way through it, but um, but so far it's been successful, and we've gotten some funding from the Virginia Department of Health, and so um, it's not developing as quickly as I would like, as far as you know the numbers. I think partially because of COVID, but but it's been a cool thing to work on, and um, hopefully will will is making a difference, and will eventually make more of a difference if I can can get it to expand more. So I'm going to ask this for a friend, right? So for a friend hypothetically speaking, take me through the beet diabetes and how it would work. And like, like for someone who maybe doesn't eat as healthy as he or she um, should. Yeah. So people sign up for it. Um, and then what happens, you fill out kind of, you know, answer some questions about some of your health behaviors and things like that when you sign up. And then people get text messages with tips sent to them a few times a week about kind of healthy eating and active living. We try to do it. Um, again, it's kind of rooted in behavioral economics. It's supposed to be like really simple, easy things. So sometimes diabetes education can get, you know, like trying to teach people to count their carbohydrates and it gets really, you know, detailed and confusing. So we, we send it to the stick with, you know, fill half your plate with fruits and vegetables or, encouraging people to take a 15 minute walk after they eat kind of simple, really doable things that people can do and that you can kind of, you know, remember easily and kind of hang your hat on. Um, so people get those. Then if people want to, I think a lot of the problems a lot of people have, so people are supposed to like check their blood sugars frequently and take medications. And, uh, and I know I'm bad at this. Like if you don't feel badly from something, like even, you know, I'm a doctor and I know that I should take all my antibiotics, but if I have a sinus infection, I get antibiotics like a week into it when I'm feeling fine, I'll like forget to take a dose and, you know, not even realize it. So if people want to, they can schedule in reminders that'll just get texted to them to check their blood sugars or take medications or exercise. And then um, there happens to be a diabetes test called the A1C, which is a blood test that people get checked at their doctors pretty frequently. And it's, uh, it correlates really well with kind of the long-term risk of complications and cost of care and all kinds of quality indicators. And it's something that patients or, and doctors follow closely. So we kind of have piggybacked on that. Um, and have tried to, to build some incentives in. So if people are able to improve that parameter 
or if they kind of get it to the goal of where we want it to be, then they can earn entries into a $1,000 drawing that we hold. So that kind of uh, part of the problem with diabetes is people feel pretty good, um, even if they're not really controlling it well. And then, you know, 10, 15 years down the road, they're going to end up you know, on dialysis or, you know, needing an amputation or something like that. But like in the moment, um, we're all pretty present focused. And so, you know, I, I know that I should eat better, but if there's like a thing of Ben and Jerry's in front of me, then I'm going to like eat the Ben and Jerry's and say, oh, you know, tomorrow I'll eat healthy. Um, and, and I think diabetes, that's just a hard thing to do to really kind of make healthy choices today that you don't want to make so that you can be healthier 15 years down the road. It's just so abstract. So we tried to build in that kind of incentive component to give people a little bit more of a short-term incentive to try to make some of these um, health changes. So I'm sitting here listening to this, right? And I'm thinking to myself, who wouldn't do this, right? In my mind, I'm thinking, that's what I need I need like a text reminder, maybe like seven times a day, like back up from the insomnia cookies, back up from Ben and Jerry's. You really don't need that slice of pizza, like all, all that kind of stuff. But I'm kind of sitting here thinking, duh, why wouldn't we want that to happen? Besides the fact that we don't want to have good habits. I get that. But like, what's the objection to that? Why would anyone in their right mind say, no, I don't want that? Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. I'm trying to figure that out. I think part of it, well, the last couple of years has been a weird time because of COVID. I feel like people have been so like underwater with like big life stuff that it's been hard to focus on that. And I think some people just don't like, don't really want to make the changes, right? Especially some of the people we're really trying to target or, you know, in denial and they don't want to deal with it. But, um, but I think if people are offered with it, yeah, I think a lot of people will at least give it a try. And I think the people who've tried it, um, it's been, been pretty helpful. Um, but yeah, marketing has been more of a challenge than I thought, because that's what I thought too. I was like, this is great. And I'm going to be at a nonprofit and I'm going to give it to people for free and everyone will sign up. Um, but I, I need to, yeah, that's my next big challenge is to, to figure out the marketing and kind of what buttons to push to get people kind of into the program. Cause once they get into the program, you know, people don't tend to drop out and people tend to do really well. So, so that's the next nut to crack. All right. We're putting that link in the show notes. And when we send the email out and I am uh, next imp up on this because there's no reason that I could possibly justify to not do it. It's like, it, there's, there's absolutely no reason, right? So I'm in Imp Nation, all 215 of you now, you're all in, come on, help, help us out here. Let's do this. Let's do something epic. So, okay, cool. So what has to happen next on the marketing front for you to get this to next gen? Yeah, I think the next thing, it has to be somebody other than me doing the marketing. <laughs> so, yeah, so hopefully I'm going to find, yeah, that's what I'm, I'm like looking around for somebody kind of smart and creative who can really kind of help um, do some cool digital advertising. Um, we've done a lot of our marketing so far through doctor's offices, um, which has been a great kind of way to start. And I think if we can get doctors to recommend it, that always it's like super helpful because it's kind of a personal recommendation. But the fact of the matter is the doctor, and I know this, like the doctors are just so busy that it's really hard for them to remember. And so I think kind of cutting out the middleman and doing more direct to consumer, if you will, marketing um, is, is kind of what I'm hoping we can move to going forward. Did you have uh, family members or friends that were dealing with diabetes that kind of led you down this path? Yeah. 
you know, I had, so the type of diabetes that I deal with primarily that the program's really built for are people with type two diabetes, I, I, which I interestingly don't have anybody in my family that, that has it, but I do have a cousin who had type one diabetes who um, got it when she was a kid, um, which is a very different animal, but I was kind of familiar um, and I think interested in it um, because of that. Okay. So now I want to shift gears one more time. You've been giving back a lot to the university too. I know you're on the uh, board of managers with the alumni association, right? I think you still are. Uh, I was, I rolled off, but yeah, I was, I did that for six years. Can you tell us about that experience? You know, that was a super fun experience because you really, you know, being in Charlottesville, I thought I knew a lot of what was going on, but I think that was just such a great connection to really kind of hear about everything. Um, yeah, that was really going on kind of at the university in a lot more detail and a lot of the kind of new cool initiatives that are that are going on. And, you know, Jim Ryan would come in and speak and the president of the honor committee would come in and speak. And so it just was a great way to kind of make more, you know, connections and, and really have a better feel on the pulse of what was going on at UVA. And then I think the other thing is, and I think, you know, I think UVA is just so special because I think the people who gravitate towards it tend to be so smart and interesting and fun. And it, yeah, it was just a great group of people. So I really looked, you know, I've been on some other boards that, that are great and important to be on, you know, but, um, but that one was really, I think, special for, for the people who were on it. And it was, um, yeah, I would look forward to the meetings just to get to, to hang out with everybody and see who kind of the new, the new group that was coming in were, um, Mike Smith was on it when I was on there. Yeah. Some, some other M's kind of rotated on that Les Williams. Um, so it was fun. You know, everyone wants me to ask this question. I'm sure two sets of twins. Yeah. It's are, a you lot. Okay? Like, <laughs> are you okay? Like, do you need like do you need like someone to like hang with? Like there's like gotta be like therapy needed with that. I mean, God, like think about it. Like one set. Wow. Like two sets. My goodness. Talk about that. Yeah. So yeah, first of all, I do say I like lost a couple years of my life that I like literally do not remember. Like I was filling out an application for my young, my younger twins to go to to kindergarten or something. One of those like ridiculous applications where you're like talking about your four-year-olds, like they're going to apply for college or something. But at, anyway, it asked about like what their first word was and like when they walked and stuff like that. And I literally was just like, I don't know. I had like, you know, four children under the age of three at that point and it was fine and nothing bad happened, but I have no idea what, you know, how they were when they said their first word. Um, and I, yeah. So the first set was great. Um, and we we're super excited because we had had a hard time getting pregnant. Um, and, uh, and I, you know, kind of got them under my belt. And then the second set were just a total surprise. And I actually was on the, yeah, ultrasound table. And I look, I do ultrasounds as part of endocrinology. We do thyroid ultrasounds and I'd been, you know, had a set of twins before. So I like looked up at the screen and I saw that it was twins before the doctor said anything. And I literally like started hyperventilating. And I think I started crying and John was like, what, what's the matter? And the doctor was like, it's twins. I was like, yes. So yeah, so that, that definitely took a little time to wrap our minds around. 
Um, and I always say like, if somebody handed me like a single baby, I wouldn't even like know what to do. Like all of my like infant parenting is based on like two babies and like these crazy schedules and stuff like that. Um, but after we got through like the initial like haze of the first few years and people were all, you know, able to like walk and, you know, stay, you know, not be deathly afraid of them, you know, doing something dangerous at every second. It's been great because they always have, you know, even if they don't always like each other, there's always kind of a friend for them to hang out with. I'm like the worst play date mom. Cause I'm like, you, you already have a built-in play date. I don't need to like arrange play dates for you. Um, and yeah, so we entered this like sweet spot, which is great. But as you know, I have four girls, two of them are 15 now, two of them are 11. Um, yeah. And I just like the 11 year olds are still pretty kind of sweet that like elementary school, they're not kind of in that like teenage, super moody, sassy stage yet, but, but I see like flickers of it starting to happen. And I think we really, yeah, may need therapy or like, you know, an escape to like, you know, move out for a while when I have four teenage girls all at the same time, I'm not sure if we're going to make it through that. I mean, it's like, so like if you were in college, you would never even think you would have one set of twins, right? You just, cause you don't, your mind doesn't think like that. Yeah. And then you had two, I know my father's family, their family is seven and they had two sets of twins in there. Oh my God. And the irony is the last two kids, number six and seven were twins. And in my mind, I'm like, what was my grandmother thinking? Like once you have the first child and then you have twins, the second, like, aren't you stopping at that point? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I don't know how people do it who have that many kids. First of all, like I can't imagine having like one more kid would just like throw me over. The other thing is like back when your grandmother had twins, like she probably didn't even know that she was having twins. I, that I cannot wrap my mind around that. Like people used to just like go to like the hospital to deliver their babies and like think they were going to come home with one baby and come home with two babies. I, I would have just lost my mind. I mean, how would you like do the pre-room prep back then, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, we spent so much time, an inordinate amount of time, picking out the crib and the color and the carpet and all this. Like, can you imagine you did all that and all of a sudden you go, you do? <laughs> what do you do? What do you do? Yeah, I cannot imagine. I cannot imagine. Okay, so you're living in Charlottesville. You're living on Rugby Road. How many days a week do you go to Bodo's? Is it like... Daily? Um, like, what do you got yeah. there? Um, I mean, probably two or three. We also tend to like buy a bunch of bagels and keep them like at the house. So we probably eat bodos more than that. My kids definitely eat bodos more than that. They'll like bring them when they pack their lunch and stuff, or we'll have them in the morning. Um, yeah, lot, lots of bodos going on for sure. And when you live there, I think the interesting question is, has your bodos order changed from when you were in college to now? Uh, I don't think it really has. I mean, I have, you know, I have like a rotation that I do. I'm very like specific. Um, yeah, two or three things, but I really am such a creature of habit and I really, yeah, eat the same two or three things every time I go there. Okay. And any competition with like Ted Jeffries or Les Williams for like the most. Oh yeah. Those are horrifying orders. Although I do have a child who likes a cinnamon raisin bagel with, uh, plain cream cheese and bacon on it, which I think is disgusting too. But um, yeah, no, mine are pretty basic. I just like, if I'm feeling like in a sweet mood, I have a cinnamon raisin with walnut raisin cream cheese. If I'm like more savory, I'll have 
uh, sesame with the herb cream cheese. Sometimes I try to convince my kids that they want one or the others, and then I'll get like half of both of them, which is really my ideal. And then I'll have the savory first and then the sweet. Um, and then for lunch, I like a Caesar salad. Those are kind of my standard orders. Well, when you have half of one kid's order and half of the other, it's almost like you had half. You didn't really exactly. have like or, or none of it, really. I'm just right. like eating bites off their flavor. So uh, words of wisdom for today's imps from your experience? Yeah, I think the this is probably more for people who are kind of finishing up and graduating, but really to take the time and energy to keep up with these friendships as you're leaving UVA and after you're leaving UVA. I think, um, you know, I certainly was not the best at keeping in touch with people. I think it's a lot easier now, hopefully, I think with cell phones and social media and stuff like that. Um, But it's easy to kind of let some of those friendships kind of slip away, which is just such a tragedy. And I'm so grateful to, like, I've got a good friend from the dorm at, you know, Watson, Amber, who has like single-handedly kept our friend group together and scheduled a trip for us every year and set up these weekly Zoom calls and people like you and Ross who have kind of worked on um, keeping the imps together and rekindling old friendships. Because I think they're just like this. And I think I mentioned it earlier. I think, you know, UVA is such a unique place. Um, There's so many just smart, interesting, kind, um, fun people there. Um, and I think it's kind of the alchemy of that and being at a time and place where you, you know, have kind of, you know, you can hang out with people for hours and create these really deep, um, valuable friendships. Um, and still to this day, I, my, my closest friends are, are people from UVA. And I think I, I left kind of thinking that, that I would find that in lots of other stages of my life and career. And I think it's just, yeah, it, it, it's, it's, it's a really special thing. And so to really kind of hold on to those and, um, and take the time to like nurture, um, and continue those connections, I think will just be a huge gift in your life. If you invest the time to do it. I love that you used the words kind and fun. I think if I had described the imps back when we were in college, I would have said smart and fun. And now I would probably, if you limited me to two words, I would say kind and fun, kind. Yeah. Like it is a really, and I think that's the common denominator. It's not smart. It's not athletic. It's not any of those things. It's kind. That's what it is. It's kind. Uh, So I think that would be a great message to send out to today's imps. Wow. Can't believe we're already in an hour. That was quick. I know, it flew by. I know I could, you know me, I could hang out with you for like <laughs> seven hours and like, you couldn't hang out with me for seven hours, but I could definitely. Oh, no, I could. Yeah. No, we're, we're, we're looking forward to the next time you're in Charlottesville. Cannot wait. All right. It was awesome seeing you. I miss Yeah. You. Thanks so much for doing this. This has been so fun to, to catch up with people, um, at least over the podcast and, and hear what everybody's up to. So thank you for, for doing this. Cool. And we're going to beat diabetes. So we're going to all get behind that. So I think that's super cool. I can't wait to post about it and do stuff. I'm kind of thinking I have like three friends in my mind that I know should be doing that anyway. So that's awesome. I guess that's how good words get spread, right? Yeah. 
All right, Imp Nation, thanks for joining us. Susan, I was looking forward to this one. So thanks for being on today. Tune in in a couple of weeks. We'll have another one out. And in the meantime, if you find any fossils out there, send them our way, get them back in the mix and let them enjoy the fun. Okay, thanks, Susan. Thanks. Take care. Hi there, Tom here. Before I let you go, I want to tell you about my other podcast, Total Sense. As you may know, after my time as an imp, I went on to become a financial advisor. Okay, stop laughing. Don't act so surprised. In each episode, I share advice to parents about how to talk to kids about money. As a parent, I know how difficult that money conversation can be, so I hope you'll listen and find it helpful. It's Total Sense. C-E-N-T-S, as in money, available anywhere you get your podcasts.